Hello, everyone. This is Admiral Jamie Fogo from the Center for Maritime Strategy at the Navy League of the United States in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Maritime Nation, a podcast designed to dive deeply into the policy challenges facing America's sea services and the role of the United States as a sea power on the global stage. We aim to provide you with the highest quality of analysis on the most pressing maritime security challenges by joining in conversation with key experts and practitioners. For those of you following the evolution of Maritime Nation, you'll recall that at the end of September, the episode Three Chiefs commemorated Chief Petty Officer Initiation, which at the time was just around the corner in the month of October, the same month that we celebrated the Navy's 247th birthday. As a result of the birthday celebration, The next podcast guest that we hosted in October was Professor Paul Kennedy of Yale University, author of the great book, The Rise and Fall of Great Powers, to talk about his new book, Victory at Sea, about the United States Navy in World War II. If you haven't listened to these two podcasts, check them out. This month, we are commemorating Veterans Day, which the nation will observe on 11 November. You may or may not know that Veterans Day has not always been known by this moniker. On November 11, 1919, President Woodrow Wilson declared this day Armistice Day, and it did not become a national holiday until President Eisenhower declared it so in 1954 and designated the day Veterans Day. Now, in my family, for over 100 years, November 11th has been known as Remembrance Day. To this day, I vividly remember my father telling a story as told to him by his father about the end of World War I. As the clock ticked toward the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, both sides fired every artillery shell they had across the lines to kill as many men as possible before the armistice, and many died in those last few minutes. How tragic. As a young boy growing up, I was always pleased when my dad would break out his collection of poppies and pin one on my blue blazer, and I am wearing one on my blue blazer as I speak. Along with pinning the poppy, he would recite In Flanders Fields by the Canadian military surgeon Lieutenant Colonel John McRae, who wrote it after an unsuccessful attempt to save the life of a young Canadian wounded in battle. McRae jotted down his emotions while looking across a brilliant field of poppies, peacefully swaying in the breeze in stark contrast to the carnage in the nearby trenches. And for me, Veterans Day is deeply personal. Both my grandfathers served in the Great War, World War I, but they were not Americans. They were Canadians serving with the Commonwealth forces on the Western Front, deep in the trenches until the war's conclusion in 1918. I brought with me today my grandfather, my maternal grandfather's war diary from World War I. And I just watched the remake of Eric Remark's book, All Quiet on the Western Front, on Netflix last night. So here's an excerpt from my grandfather's diary, which is reminiscent of the carnage you see in that movie. The date is Monday, March 4th, 1918. Cold, raw, wet day. Spent the day in camp. Big raid in the morning. On the front. In front of Cité Romain. We all, quote-unquote, stood to. About 100 Germans came across, but were practically annihilated. The Canadian 16th and 21st Battalions had quite a lot of casualties. The barrage was heavy beforehand and lots of gas. Our men stood to for 40 minutes. End of the entry for that day. Just like the movie, and if you haven't seen it or read the book, even better, 
I'd highly recommend it to you. That was my maternal grandfather. My paternal grandfather was also a World War I combatant. He earned the military cross uh, with the Canadian Winnipeg Grenadiers in World War II as a brevet captain in the trenches suppressing machine gun nests in the Battle of Bourlon Wood, one of the key campaigns uh, towards the end of the war in September of 1918. So as a commander of Naval Forces Europe and Africa, my last job before I retired, I was deeply honored to speak at the American Cemetery in Flanders Field in Belgium on the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. On November 11th, 2018. My speech started at 11 o'clock in the morning. Standing on this hollow battlefield and looking across 368 headstones of valiant young men who died during the last days of the war, I also thought about the almost 54,000 American service members lost in that war, over a thousand of whom died on Belgian soil where I was standing, thousands of miles from their wives, their children, their parents, and their loved ones. And as those loved ones would have demanded, the cemetery is kept in pristine condition with gleaming marble headstones, beautifully manicured green grasses and shrubbery. This cemetery, like 26 permanent American military cemeteries and 32 federal memorials, monuments, and markers located in 17 different countries, is maintained by the American Battle Monuments Commission. And today, I am delighted to have the chairman of the American Battle Monuments Commission Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, United States Army retired, and a commissioner, Fleet Master Chief Raymond Kemp, United States Navy retired, with me today. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Admiral. Admiral, it's great to be with you. And my good buddy, uh, Fleet Raymond Kemp. Fantastic. Now, let me just make a brief introduction of these two fine men. At the pinnacle of his career, Fleet Kemp was the Command Master Chief of USS Harry S. Truman, followed by Command Master Chief of the Office of Navy Inspector General here in Washington, followed by almost three years as my Fleet Master Chief at Naval Forces Europe and Africa in Naples, Italy. We used to say we were each other's battle buddies. After retirement, Fleet Kemp was selected by President Biden to serve as a Commissioner of the American Battle Monuments Commission. Well done, Fleet. We're also delighted to be joined here today by Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, General Hurtling served for 38 years in the United States Army as a tanker and a cavalryman, serving at every level from tank platoon leader on the east-west German border to commander of the 7th Army. He retired in December of 2012 after serving as commanding general of U.S. Army Europe, where he led over 60,000 soldiers and partnered with the armies of 51 nations. That's incredible. Lieutenant General Hurtling served a total of 38 months in combat as a major in a as a major player in a cavalry squadron during uh, Desert Storm, and as an assistant division commander in the 1st Armored Division in Baghdad from 2003 to 2004, and as the commander of 1st Armored Division and Multinational Task Force Ironsides in Northern Iraq in 2007 to 2008. This is where I first met Lieutenant General Hurtling in Mosul and Nineveh government in Iraq, and it was a very tough fight. Since retiring from the Army, General Hurtling has continued to serve our nation, wearing various hats and teaching the new generation of decision makers. He is a spectacular military commentator on CNN, and you can always count on him for thoughtful analysis and truthful reporting. In 2021, he was appointed by President Biden to be the commissioner of the American Battle Monuments Commission and the chairman of the American Battle Monuments Commission, where he now serves. Mark, thanks for joining us. And gentlemen, as the chairman and commissioner, 
Can you tell our listeners about the American Battle Monuments Commission, what it is, and what it does? Well, Ray, if you don't mind, I'll go first and, and talk a little bit. Uh, Admiral, you brought up some great points. Uh, we, we oversee a total of about 450 uh, civilians uh, who maintain the 26 cemeteries and the 32 monuments uh, in 17 countries and on five continents all over the world that really are in honor of our servicemen and women uh, who have died on foreign soil. Uh, it is just a true honor to be a part of the commission that, that oversees those individuals who take care of and manicure uh, those, those places. It's especially important, you know, Admiral, you mentioned about giving the speech uh, on the 100th anniversary in Flanders Field. Uh, Ray and I get to be a part of the commission on the 100th anniversary of the founding of the American Battle Monuments Commission. Uh, it was an act of Congress that put us in place in the year 1923. And the main purpose really was to determine how to address the challenges of re-interning uh, over 116,000 veterans and civilians who had died in World War I. Congress didn't quite know how to address that. There were literally hundreds of thousands of, of burials overseas during the great battles of World War I. And the United States had never faced the challenge of bringing that many soldiers back home from foreign lands. So after a great debate in Congress in 1921 and 22, addressing the kinds of monuments that should go up and how these grave sites should be maintained and how family members had a choice of either uh, allowing their loved ones to continue to be buried on overseas sites are brought home to either veteran cemeteries in the United States or private cemeteries, family plots, uh, about 40% of the families decided to leave their soldiers overseas uh, in resting places. And, and that's the, that was the start of the American Battle Monuments Commission. And then during World War II, those, those grave sites expanded even more uh, until today, as you said earlier, we have 26 sites and 32 major monuments that address campaigns and wars at different places throughout the world. There are a few that are specifically geared toward the United States Navy, and I'm going to let Fleet Kemp talk about those. But having been to one of those, uh, the one at Gibraltar, it is just a, a fabulous monument. Uh, I know Fleet's been to the one in, in, uh, in New York, which is the East Coast Memorial, and he can talk a little bit more about that one. But again, it's dedicated to soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, Coast Guardsmen, uh, merchant Marine, and in some cases, civilians like uh, the American Red Cross, Nurse Corps, and others. So I'll turn it over to my, to my shipmate, uh, Ray Kemp, and let him talk a little bit more about it. Outstanding. Awesome. It's absolutely a pleasure uh, to be here with you. I highly esteem gentlemen. Uh, I do appreciate the relationship that we have outside of the show and to be able to come together right now uh, is certainly a pleasure. Uh, to, to Mark's point with regard to the uh, naval, one of our sites that recognizes a, a, a serious uh, naval activity there on uh, our East Coast Memorial is in uh, Battery Park, New York. In fact, we had an opportunity to go visit together uh, the commission 
um, earlier uh, this year, and it was a spectacular event. And Admiral, to your point, when it comes down to keeping uh, the the grounds, uh, the the monument, and the cemeteries in a pristine condition, it absolutely holds true there in New York. It's right in Battery Park, and so the uh, ferry that goes back and forth to um, to the uh, Liberty, the uh, Statue of Liberty, uh, right, land right. right there. And so what a great opportunity as folks are passing through there on uh, their national, their normal transit to see, uh, these really, uh, nice, um, uh, placards that are up, uh, with names. And I'll tell you, there's so many names there. It's so easy uh, to find uh, a family name or what, if not your own one that you're very familiar with, uh, there and to, uh, have the opportunity to travel. I had the the chance to go back to Europe, Admiral, uh, and visit uh, Anzio uh, in Florence once uh, again. Yeah. Just amazing uh, grounds and the opportunity uh, to talk to uh, the groundskeepers and those who are visiting uh, and express our uh, level of uh, thanks uh, for them uh, maintaining such a high standard and to talk to those visitors that were there. Uh, when I was in uh, Florence, there was uh, family members, uh, a, a daughter and a granddaughter who had traveled from Washington State uh, to make their way uh, and see the resting site. And what was interesting to me is I learned once I became part of the commission is that there was a time uh, where there was a, there were funds set aside for those families to go over uh, and see their family members. It was just a, a great opportunity for, for people to uh, be able to go over and have a moment um, of closure for some or a celebration, depending on what their belief system is. Um, with their family member, and then the opportunity to really see uh, the countryside and and what that particular host nation may have uh, to offer uh, as a measure of recognition there. So it, it has been a pleasure uh, to be a part of ABMC, and you had a lot to do with that. Quiet as kept, I was so long. Hey, Fleet Camp, thanks very much. And, you know, thanks to Mark for uh, reminding us that on either side of the Atlantic Ocean, both sides are bookmarked by American Battle Monuments Commission monuments. So Battery Park, the great news about that is uh, this Veterans Day, you can take a walk down on Battery Park and you can see this for free. In Gibraltar, I've been there many times as a submariner, spectacular place and monument, and uh, it's known as the American Steps. Gibraltar represents those lost in the first Battle of the Atlantic and Battery Park, the second Battle of the Atlantic. Anybody that's seen Tom Hanks' magnificent movie Greyhound knows that we lost thousands of mariners in the Atlantic to the German submarine force of World War I and World War II before we turned the tide of the war with American industrial power. That's really special. And finally, um, thank you for mentioning Anzio uh, Fleet Camp, because that was right in my backyard in Naples and yours too. And you probably remember that great Italian that took us on a staff ride one time named Alfredo Rinaldi. Alfredo was a kid and he lived in Anzio, but his mother, uh, single mother, fled to Rome during the war. And he missed his, uh, his house so much that he just got up one night and walked back to Anzio through the German lines. And the first person he met when he got through the German lines, which was remarkable, on the other side was an American sergeant, an African-American sergeant in a Jeep smoking a cigar. And this guy was amazed that the kid made it that far. He took him in for an intelligence debriefing. Alfredo said, I want to go back and see my mom in Rome. And he said, you're not going anywhere, kid. But he drew the locations of all the uh, German outposts and artillery 
And of course, we asked Alfredo, who was in his late 70s, to be our guide for a staff ride in Anzio, and it was just absolutely magnificent. And of course, we went to the American Battle Monument Cemetery in Rome, where he worked after the war. He enlisted in the U.S. Army for a couple of years and, and was part of our team. So <clears throat> thank you very much for, uh, for that by way of introduction and keeping this in the maritime domain uh, for our podcast, The Maritime Nation. Now, along those lines, General Hurtling, you, uh, you reminded me also of the famous Battle of Bella Wood and the Aine uh, Marne Cemetery where you have been before, where United States Marines are buried. It's an incredible cemetery. And uh, during that battle, that famous Battle of Bella Wood in World War I, the Marines were uh, labeled the devil dogs by the Germans. Can you tell us a little bit more about that battleground, that ABMC cemetery, and the United States Marines' final resting place, please? I'd love to, Amar. You know, but before I do, though, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to jump in since you guys are talking all these naval battles and everything. I, I got to give a shout out to my brother-in-law, who was a merchant marine. He went to the uh, New York Merchant Marine Academy. No kidding. <laughs> and, and, and our sites also recognize all the merchant marines who were uh, part of the U.S. NS, I guess it's called, uh, yeah. the Naval Shipping. Uh, during the war that lost so many ships and lost so many sailors uh, during convoy operations and getting resupplies. And, and every smart strategist knows that, that amateurs talk tactics, but professionals talk strategies and logistics. And uh, that's what those merchant marines were doing during the war. But, but going to the, the, the Battle of Belle Wood, this year, fleet was down at, uh, in Naples, and I got to go to a couple cemeteries in Paris on Memorial Day, or in, in France, rather. And one of the ones I went to, I'd been there before, but never with <laughs> the contingent of Marines that greeted me at the Ain Marne uh, Cemetery, uh, which it, a lot of soldier, soldiers and Marines that fought in the Battle of Belle Wood are resting there. Uh, a beautiful site in the middle of the French countryside. Uh, it is away from the big city. There is nothing but farmlands around, but it is an absolutely gorgeous location. And the Commandant was there this year, and I learned that every other year it's either the Commandant or the Deputy Commandant that go to that memorial on Memorial Day and pay a huge tribute to the Marines that gave their lives there. There's a bulldog statue, uh, <laughs> or excuse me, a bulldog fountain, nearby and i i got to become an official marine for about five minutes and drink from the bulldog statue and i actually ran into a couple marines i had served with in iraq that were part of the commandant's contingent you know the commandant really did it right too this year he brought about 20 marines with him uh, and i think he he actually generated those visits uh, based on you know some some uh, attempts to get the best Marines on his staff. So he had a bunch of young sergeants and Lance Corporals with him, but he also had part of the Marine jazz band with him. And after the cemetery was over, we went to the local French village where there were literally hundreds of French people uh, who really see that cemetery as their own. They care for it. It's not just the members of the American Battle Monument Commission and Agency that care for that cemetery. But you'll find in a lot of our cemeteries, it's the local population that also come on and volunteer. Sometimes they adopt graves for generation. Yeah. And that's the case at, at, at Ein Marne, 
which also has one of our battle monuments nearby, which is a phenomenal architectural piece. Uh, but I had a chance to talk to the Commandant of the Marine Corps. This uh, The first time he had visited that cemetery was as a young major, wow. and he was so impressed with not only the upkeep of the ground, but the surrounding area that he wanted to take this contingent of Marines with him after the Memorial Day Cemetery on a staff ride of the Battle of Bella Wood, where the Marines gained their their now famous nickname of Tufelhound or Devil Dogs. <laughs> uh, and it was a tremendous event uh, to be with so many Marines uh, that year. It was just really great to see the Commandant putting so much emphasis on the history and the heraldry of the Marine Corps at that one fight. Mark, thank you so much. And that sparked a, a couple of additional memories in my mind, too. You know, the Marines are just uh, probably one of the best services at marketing and uh, recruiting <laughs> young Marines. They've got all these uh, slick commercials on TV with uh, Mameluke. Well, I can remember uh, a Marine Corps birthday ball a few years ago when General Neller, when he was the commandant, did a uh, terrain walk or a battlefield walk, and Bella Wood was included in that. And it was just uh, the metaphor and uh, the emotion and the reverence of uh, what he said to commemorate those Marines and their lives lost was uh, absolutely uh, spectacular. And I remember also when uh, General Kelly and General Dunford went to uh, observe Veterans Day at uh, Bella Wood, and uh, I think General Dunford or General Kelly uh, brought some of the soil from Sanjin province where General Kelly's son was killed in Afghanistan and he spread it amongst the battlefield at Bella Wood. I mean, just totally emotional and a wonderful tribute to that young captain who gave his life for freedom. It is a small world, Mark. So your brother-in-law, a member of the Merchant Marine, when I was in Europe, I had a podcast called On the Horizon, and I asked General Petraeus to do a podcast on the Battle of the Atlantic uh, because his father, Sixtus Petraeus, was a Dutch sea captain and wow. sailed those Merchant Marine Liberty ships across the Atlantic many, many times. And he lost a lot of friends, but he lived. And so General Petraeus was uh, very, very outgoing and uh, interested in talking about that incredible family history. And also I saw for myself in France, in Belgium, and in Italy where these families will adopt the graves and take uh, such good care of our American servicemen. Mark, kind of jumping a little bit to World War II, with all the background that you've given us here, gentlemen, I want to give you another anecdote from my family. So two grandfathers in the First World War, it was uh, a natural reaction of my paternal grandfather when the Second World War broke out. And he was an emigre from Scotland to Canada, and he went back and took a war bride from Scotland who then settled in Canada, and he had two sons, uh, my father, Stuart, and uh, my uncle, Jim. And when the war broke out, he took both of those boys down to the recruiting station, signed them up. My uncle was the lucky one. He joined the Canadian Navy, and uh, he walked a pier in Halifax for the rest of the war. My dad became a Lake Superior Regiment gunner of the uh, Canadian Armed Forces, Winnipeg Grenadier first, then Lake Superior when he went across the ocean. And he arrived in Normandy on D-plus 45, a month and a half after D-Day. That was July 19, 1944. But it wasn't a cakewalk. I mean, they got to the beachhead and they started to move out with the uh, 4th Canadian Armored Division. And they soon ran into a very formidable enemy in the form of SS Panzer Grenadiers, who were these units that uh, Rommel had along the coast. And they weren't about to give up. 
Now, I've been to Normandy many times, both to uh, Sword and Juneau and Utah beaches. Uh, I was there for a ceremony on the 75th. And for all Americans or anybody listening to this podcast, if you haven't had the opportunity to go to the American Battle Monuments cemeteries in Normandy commemorating that horrific landing, I urge you to do so. The 94, almost 9,400 graves are maintained by ABMC, and it is stunningly beautiful while at the same time somber and tragic. So, Mark, you told me a story about visiting the ABMC Cemetery in Margarten in the Netherlands on Christmas Eve in 2011. Would you mind sharing that uh, story and your trip to Normandy with a few U.S. veterans with our uh, listeners today, please? Yeah, and right, as, as Ray has already said, I know he's going to talk more about staff rides in Europe, but we had a formal program uh, in U.S. Army Europe that I know uh, our counterpart, you know, Mark, General Mark Welsh of the Air Force, and, and I Absolutely. know you, did, Great it down, guy. you yeah. did it down in Naples. But I think all of our forces that are assigned in Europe have the opportunity to do staff rides, and usually those staff rides end at one of our ABMC cemeteries as kind of a reminder of the heraldry and the, the traditions that are our military and what we fight for today was fought for in the past by others. The, the, the story you want me to tell, as beautiful as Normandy is, and it's, it's our cemetery that, that generates the most visitors every year, about 3 million every year go to Normandy and the, the associated Pont de Hoc Ranger uh, Memorial that's right. right near the cemetery. But one year while I was commanding in Europe, I got a call from actually one of our sergeants majors up in uh, in in the in Belgium in the ben- we used to call it the Benelux Belgium Netherlands yeah. and Luxembourg uh, are three countries held by one garrison. Garrison commander called and he said, "Hey, sir," he said, uh, "He said I know your kids aren't coming over for Christmas this year, and it's just you and Mrs. Hertling. Uh, why don't you come up and attend midnight mass at at one of our caves up here?" Wow. <laughs> and I said, "What are you talking about, Chief?" He says, sir, he said, I got to tell you, he says, we've got this cave. I think if you came up, uh, I don't want to tell you any more to tell you about the surprise, but it's really kind of a once in a lifetime experience. So Sue and I got in our car. We drove up on Christmas Eve morning to Margraten. And as we were checking in our hotel, my wife, who always goes to the to the little stand that you always have in the hotel with the tourist traps that are nearby. Yeah, and she yeah. said, hey, did you know? that there's a cemetery near here. And I said, yeah, I, I did. It's the Margrat Cemetery. I've been there. And the Netherlands, the formal name is the Netherlands American Cemetery. And it's got about 8,000 uh, remains, final resting place. And she said, well, let's let's go on over there. And I said, well, Sue, it was raining outside, horrible European day. And I said, well, maybe we can go tomorrow if, if the rain lets up. Because she said, no, let's go now. So we drove out to the site. It was about five miles from the hotel. And, uh, as we pulled into the parking lot of the Netherlands American Cemetery, the place was packed at about three o'clock Christmas Eve afternoon. Wow. And as anyone who's lived in Europe knows, Christmas Eve is the day that most Europeans really celebrate Christmas. Absolutely. So when we walked into the cemetery, there were probably 400 people walking around the cemetery, cleaning graves. And this was not the ABMC staff. These were the locals. We sat there and watched as locals uh, just took care of the graves. And we finally went up to one, a couple that had, it looked like two twin boys, and they were cleaning both a, a cross grave marker and also a Star of David grave marker. 
And we asked them what they were doing. They said, well, these are the graves we have adopted. And they have been in our family for over 50 years. Mm -hmm. And we're passing them from generation to generation. And we have our two children here who are helping us clean the graves too, because that's what we all do on Christmas Eve from the local town. What I found out later was that every single one of the graves, the thousands of graves in that cemetery, had been adopted by a local citizen from the town of Margrat, which is a relatively small town. And there was a waiting list for those graves to be adopted. Wow, really? It was just amazing. It was just simply amazing. We later heard a story about uh, from the site superintendent, the cemetery superintendent told us, one day an ambulance pulled into the parking lot and suddenly a couple of EMTs started getting a woman out of the back that was on a stretcher on a gurney and she was there with her daughter. And in, in the Netherlands, this woman knew she had been dying of cancer. She knew she was going to go soon. So she wanted to come out and pay one last visit to the soldier that was in that grave she had adopted and officially turn it over to her daughter, who was going to then adopt the grave, which is just one of many stories, serendipity. That night, we went to a mass in the cave at a place called the Deschartes Cave Complex. It's not a typical cave like Americans would know, you know, where there's stalactites and stalagmites. It was a a quarry cave. But inside that cave was a big room where in 1944, soldiers from Bradley's army had had a a Christmas Eve midnight mass in that room before they went up to the front to fight in the Battle of Bastogne. And on the wall of that cave, was right where mass was being said was uh, signatures of over 300 soldiers who had spent midnight mass in that cave. And of the 300 plus soldiers, almost 290 of them had died in the Battle of the Bulge. The priest that was saying the mass that night had been an altar boy at six years old back in 1944. And he told us of the of the unbelievable emotions on one side of the cave, there was the the joyful celebration of liberation by the Dutch citizens. On the other side of the cave, there was obviously the anxiety of the American soldiers that were going back to the front to continue to fight against the German army. So it was just an unbelievable memory from my time uh, as commander of U.S. Army Europe. That is just unbelievable. What an incredible story, and and thanks so much for doing that on your Christmas Eve, and and that's uh, just reminiscent of many of the things that I saw while I was in Europe about uh, Europeans who still pay homage and uh, great reverence to the sacrifices that our, our forefathers made as they went before us. Back to Fleet Kemp. You know, uh, Fleet, when you and I were working together, I was uh, adamant that as both 6th Fleet Commander and later as uh, Commander Naval Forces Europe and Africa, that on every Veterans Day or Remembrance Day or Armistice Day, 11-11-11 November, and every Memorial Day, I pushed out all of my Command Master Chiefs and all of my flag officers to ABMC sites all over Europe. And I thought it was our patriotic duty to do that. And uh, many of them came back. In fact, Dozier Dwyer the other day uh, was up in Halifax, Nova Scotia with the uh, aircraft carrier Ford. He was ashore and he was wearing a poppy like me. And I think he learned about uh, Flanders Fields during his time with us in Europe. 
You once told me that was inspirational to you, Fleet, and it made a big difference when you got to the American Battle Monuments Commission. Can you elaborate a little bit on that for us? Absolutely. And, and if I could, just before I do that, uh, to go back to the point that you and uh, Mark Hurling were both making about how the Europeans just embrace that relationship. DE-529, uh, the destroyer escort ship Mason, was on its journeys back and forth, and they were in their escort duties, end up in a, a storm on those hundred year storms and were lost at sea, were able to do some repairs on their own uh, and then go back out and, and find those uh, merchant ships and safely deliver them. Because the 529 was the you know first all black ship, uh, they actually ran into some liberty issues. They were going into uh, certain ports looking for liberty. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, some uh, countries were saying that we, there won't be any brown yanks here. Uh, but they did make their way uh, into Ireland. And not only did they make their way to Ireland, welcomed with open arms. Uh, and even now, to this day, I, I, I was on 2016, uh, I had the opportunity to go to Ireland with the, US, the uh, modern day USS Mason guided missile destroyer 87 and do a visit. And they are campaigning in, in their own way, trying to figure out how can they get a memorial there. So those memories uh, are, are are generational, uh, as you all have yeah, just yeah. spoken to. Uh, and when it comes to Staff Rise Abra, look, that, that was one of the first times I had seen a commander say, look, out, you will be <laughs> out and about. You will not be sitting here uh, in Naples, book bags down and feet up. You'll be out um, going to these sites. Uh, if you end up you know, taking a team with you, so be it, but you, uh, will be out and have the opportunity to see and recognize, uh, pay homage to, and and celebrate the effort um, that was, you know, commemorated in very is still commemorated in various different sites. And so that to me was uh, it was very interesting because of the energy you put into it. And then what was I would say equally interesting is how people would come back with just some measure of inspiration. I mean, they go, you know, heads hung down, dragging their feet, and they come back, you know, 10 feet tall and bulletproof, chest out, saying, you would not believe what I've just seen. And so, you know, that word of mouth and the energy, you know, that was ge generated by what it might have initially felt to them as, you know, pretty strict direction, because it was, <laughs> <laughs> turned out to be a, a force magnifier. And when people began to realize, oh, I mean, Anthea Rome is driving distance, yeah. um, then there were several occasions where families would make those road trips there uh, and, again, come back with just another level of understanding because it's the stories. You know, we discussed this many times. It's the stories that kind of connect people uh, to places. Uh, for example, further up in Florence, the story of Irvin Lawrence. Uh, he was a Tuskegee Airman. And yeah. he's one of, if not the only, but one of the uh, Tuskegee Airmen commemorated there uh, in Florence. And what an interesting story. You just happened to be there having a conversation with folks. And they're like, oh, by the way, there's a Tuskegee Airmen over here on uh, this particular row. And then to go over and be able to just spend some time there um, was was very, very uh, encouraging to me and, and an unexpected delight.
But the guidance, again, you know, sometimes, you know, you're told to do something that you think is going to be tough and it actually works out for uh, a great benefit. And so when I had the opportunity to accept the appointment to the American Battle Monuments Commission, I was like, come on, if Admiral Fogo was with, with me right now, <laughs> he'd probably fight me with his fist trying to get in this position before me. And no, so I'm proud of you. I'm glad you're there. Uh, that's fantastic. Well, thank you very much, uh, Fleet, for sharing that with our audience. And, you know, one of those uh, epiphany tours that I took, I was uh, the operations officer for Joint Task Force Odyssey Dawn, which was the suppression of Qaddafi's uh, 32nd Armored Brigade back in 2011 that he was using to kill innocent people in Benghazi and the Transnational Council. And so we had a U.N. Security Council resolution. This thing went on for a long time, and it translated over to NATO, it was a nine-month operation and, uh, you know, 19,000 sorties, 10,000 precision-guided munitions to give the Libyans the right to self-determination. During that time, you know, we had the outbreak of the Arab Spring. Governments were falling apart. Tunisia was one of those places that looked like uh, there was going to be instability and perhaps an opportunity for terrorists to move in. We have an American Battle Monument Cemetery that's magnificent in Tunisia near Carthage outside of Tunis, and uh, I have been there. What's really important about that cemetery is during the Arab Spring and beyond, when it looked like it was going to be risky to keep the American superintendent from American Battle Monuments Commission living in his little house near the cemetery, because we we couldn't protect him, uh, we pulled him out. And the gentleman that took over the duties of caring for those American war dead and their graves because everybody was worried, like, well, what will happen if a bad actor comes in here and tries to do something to these graves? The gentleman that took that dubious responsibility was the gardener, a Tunisian gardener. He'd been there for like 30 years. And I went to see that guy, and he was magnificent. He talked to me about cleaning the stones every day. He had a section he would go in and clean, you know, with, uh, with soap and water and a sponge and a bucket and take care of the grasses. I mean, it was just absolutely beautiful. And in the shadow of the presidential palace of Tunisia on the other side of the gate, you know, with the half moon crescent shining down on the graves of Muslim Americans, Jewish Americans, and Christians, and hundreds and hundreds of graves. Now, there was one in particular I was just totally dumbstruck by. And it goes back to a quick story. Uh, in front of me here today, I have a, uh, a book. I used to hunt around the brocante and antique shops of Europe when I had some free time. And while I was stationed in Belgium, I went to this place called a Troc. They're all over the place, T-R-O-C. And they carry all these old artifacts that most people aren't interested in, but I am. And I found a bound set of uh, magazines, which is entitled the uh, Berliner Illustrated Zeitung. So the Illustrated Berliner Daily Magazine. And this magazine uh, starts in 1936 in the Berlin Olympics. And when I opened the, the little book in the store, I think it cost me, you know, 25 bucks. I noticed that on the day that the Olympics were taking place in the 100 meter, 200 meter and wellspring events, that the person that owned this book had taken a fountain pen and written down the gold medal winner of each of these events, starting with Jesse Owens in the 100, 10.3 seconds. Jesse Owens in the 200 meter, 20.7 seconds. So. He ran two consecutive 100 meters and only increased his time by 0.1 second. 
in the second one, the Wellspring event, uh, where he jumped 28 and a half meters. And then finally, the four by 100 meter relay. And that's where I want to make the connection with the American Battle Monument Cemetery in Tunisia. So there were four Americans that were going to run in that four by 100 race. Adolf Hitler wasn't happy that Jesse Owens and Ralph Metcalf, uh, two African-Americans, were participating. He was even more upset that uh, Marty Glickman and Sam Stoller, who were two Jewish-American athletes that were going to run in that 4 by 100 race, were Jewish. And so he went to the Olympic Committee, the head of which was an American, and he said, you have to cut Stoller and Glickman, or Goebbels did it, somebody did it for Hitler, you have to cut these two guys off the 4 by 100 meter team. And I'm ashamed to say that they did it. Glickman and Stoller were gone, and their opportunity to compete for America and show all the hard work they had done just kind of went up in smoke in, a, in an instant. The two guys that took their place, Jesse Owens and Ralph Metcalf, those two African-American athletes ran with Foy Draper and Frank Wickoff, and they won the gold. It was a spectacular record that held for 10 years. Foy Draper went back to the United States, joined the U.S. Army Air Corps, and he was flying over North Africa when he was lost in combat in World War II, and he is buried at the American Battle Monument Cemetery in Tunisia, and that's where the gardener come superintendent took me to the first gravesite, and I was just blown away. It was an incredible honor. And you can't imagine the feelings that I had knowing this story and having had this book in my library for years and then actually not knowing that Foy Draper, one of these guys in the 4 by 100 was there. So that's, that's the novelty, that's the specialty, that's the patriotism that American Battle Monuments brings to us. Now, Fleet, you know, I was down in uh, Newport News about a month and a half ago, and I got to walk on board USS John F. Kennedy. You know, that aircraft carrier, CVN-79. 78 is the Ford. She's at sea on her first deployment right now. Like I said, she was up north with the Canadians. Uh, CVN-80, the Enterprise, the keel has been laid. And uh, CVN-81 will be the USS Dory Miller. I know, because you and I talked during... Uh, Black History Month, during Martin Luther King's uh, Remembrance Day, and uh, during Veterans Day, we often talked about Dory Miller. Would you share some observations about Dory Miller and what he did at Pearl Harbor in 1941 on USS West Virginia for our uh, listeners today? Well, dude, so the, this, I remember uh, as, a, as a young man, my uh, aunt told me when we were at church one day, she said, these things are interesting, but it's really the stories that you'll remember. Uh, and as a child, that just has been ingrained in me, and it has, and and it just grew my whole life. I have been very interested in in the stories, uh, even uh, about Foy Draper, the fact that he was like five five, and he had the record for a while in the hundred before uh, Jesse Owens got the record, who was uh, certainly taller than him. Just interesting uh, to me. Doris Miller, and his name was Doris, his nickname uh, was Dory, was a hunk of a man. Now, all of us on this call are tall. We're all, if we're standing next to each other, we're six one, between 6'1", six 6'3". Six uh, and so when people uh, see us, we're a bit uh, intimidating. We're kind of like the, the thermostat. You know, when we enter a room, you know, there's an impact. And Dory Miller 
also a big, strong man. Uh, in those days when he enlisted in the Navy, there were very few ratings that were uh, available. You know, nowadays, I think there's maybe 89 or so uh, ratings. Um, there's always been a lot of jobs in the Navy, but in the days of integration, the early integration, there were very few that uh, black men uh, were allowed to and women were allowed to be a part of. Uh, he joined as a mess attendant, uh, as a mess cook, which meant that he would have duties in the kitchen. He would also have duties in uh, helping the officers uh, maintain uniforms and quarters and things like that. Uh, and that's what his duties and responsibilities were uh, at the time. Um, in per when, During the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, the ship was struck. Uh, he was uh, called upon by you know, one of the officers to help go and save the captain, uh, pull him, because uh, he had been injured, probably hit with shrapnel, and uh, pull him out of the, uh, the bridge quarters. The captain was the captain, so he's like, yeah, I'm not going to go. He's asking, you know, about the, the condition of the ship, so on and so forth. Uh, once that, you know, was uh, established, then uh, Dory, again, a big guy, uh, was given direction on how to fire this uh, this machine gun weapon. Now, he had never done that before. I wasn't in his uh, normal cast of uh, duties, and so uh, he goes down, but he's from Texas. So he goes down uh, to uh, the area, uh, I think the starboard and uh, port guns were, uh, while one of the officers was giving him direction on how to fire it. I guess as he was given directions, he turned away as the story goes. Uh, he turned away and the next thing you know, you know, Dory is shooting down at least uh, two uh, inbound uh, aircraft, which is just it's a superior feat, not just because you're able to shoot down a moving aircraft, but you go from being, you know, a stew burner, you go from being a person who, you know, who prepares, you know, uniforms and so forth uh, for the uh, the officer's quarters to being uh, on a gun that you haven't been trained on and you're successful, you know, in shooting down those aircraft and then go back to using your, your strength to help carry uh, sailors who have been injured, you know, to safer parts of the ship. And so uh, Dory Miller uh, exercising, you know, that manner of her heroism uh, in that particular battle has been a, a story of someone we've been able to celebrate. And I'm, I know that there's more, to to Dory, and I know that there are more people uh, who also had uh, heroic moments. But I'm just thankful uh, that in a time of such high discrimination, there was uh, a leader, and, and like my experience has been with both of you, a, a leader who had a, a kind and caring heart who realized, okay, it may not be traditional for him to get this level of award, but he deserves it. He's going to get it regardless of his skin tone. And when he got that award, the ability, Ebony Magazine, which is still a big publication uh, in the black community, uh, published that. And so the black community realized, oh, there is some measure of meritocracy within the Navy. And we have someone who has done something great. And he became a folk hero even outside of the Navy because of that. And so I knew of Dory Miller before I even considered joining the Navy. Um, and now, you know, here we are with the first aircraft carrier, yeah. super carrier, if I may, <clears throat> named after our first enlisted person. And oh, by the way, it happens to be uh, Dory Miller, who is from Waco, Texas. It's a big deal. It's a really big deal. I'm happy that the Navy um, was modest and humble enough to realize that we ought to recognize people on merit, and that's what has happened with this aircraft carrier. So well said, Fleet. And uh, Dory Miller, Navy Cross winner, I just couldn't think of a, a better person 
to be on the uh, the stern, the name on the stern of that ship, CVN 81. 81 also, uh, you know, my uh, class from the Naval Academy. And uh, Dory Miller ultimately gave his uh, ultimate, you know, his, his sacrifice. He sacrificed his life, but he died before uh, the end of World War II, so he never got a chance to uh, to actually, uh, you know, see after the war the impact of what he had done. And so I, like you, I'm, I'm so happy that the Navy has taken this direction to name that ship after him. And you saw him in uh, Tora, 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 that classic movie, and also in Pearl Harbor, Liv Tyler and Ben Affleck. He's out there on the gun shooting away and taking down uh, Japanese Zeros. Mark, I'd like to give you the last word to talk about how the American people, sometimes uh, you and I spoke about this, tend to confuse the purpose of Veterans Day, the day to honor those who serve, versus uh, Memorial Day uh, to remember those who made the uh, supreme sacrifice. So if you would, tell us uh, what that means to you. Uh, You had uh, uh, several tours in uh, Iraq, your family, your sons deployed, you lost soldiers there. I have seen you on CNN talking about this on uh, those national holidays. Uh, Please share some of your insights with us today on this as the last word. Well, I'd be honored to, and thanks for letting me do that. But first, I want to comment on Ray, because every time I'm around him, I learn something new. Uh, I knew the story of Dory Miller. I didn't know the details that Ray just mentioned. But most importantly, I had never heard the phrase stew burner before to signify a cook. So every time I'm around you Navy folks, I learn something new. Stew burner is a cook. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. We just call them spoons. Uh, Admiral, regarding the, the, the confusion on Veterans Day, uh, which is really meant to honor those who have served uh, versus Memorial Day, which is a time to remember those who have made the supreme sacrifice, it's, it's hard to completely disconnect the two. You know, Veterans Day should be a day of celebration. Uh, You know, it it was the original Armistice Day that turned into Veterans Day, and it was a celebration of the end of a war, an end of a lot of people fighting uh, for what they believed in, for their values, for the defense of their oath. It became Veterans Day as a time to remember those who fought, but you can't disconnect that to those who gave the ultimate sacrifice. So whereas I'll celebrate Veterans Day and we're happy when we're around fellow veterans of all the services, on Memorial Day, it's much more somber. And, and in both cases, at the American Battle Monuments Commission, we, we commemorate those two days as special occasions. And I think one of the things you, you and I talked about that was just so special that, you know, this is more than just a federal holiday. This is more than a time to get your mattresses on sale or or go down and have a barbecue somewhere. This is a day to really think and reflect on who we are as a nation. Mm. The kind of things that Ray was just talking about, the ability to respect one another and understand the the value and the worth of each individual. So, you know, it was interesting as we were talking, I'm I'm looking behind my shoulder and you see that that, uh, stuffed dinosaur that's on my shelf. That is, uh, that's Dino. And Dino was our youngest son's stuffed animal when he was three years old. And I went off to, to go in Desert Storm as I was kissing him goodbye before I got in the car and left at two o'clock in the morning. I thought he was asleep. He woke up. He stuck this in my face and he said, here, Dad, take this with you. It'll keep you safe. This is Dino. 
So I took it with me to Desert Storm. Fast forward a couple more years, our oldest son was going off to combat in uh, Iraqi Freedom One. He was part of the invasion force. And so I handed it to him to take with him on that wow. trip. Wow. I replaced him in Iraq a couple months later. We were there together for a while. As he was heading off, he gave it to me, so I held it with me for a while. I got home. Our youngest son, who had originally given it to me as a three-year-old, had just graduated from the from West Point, and he was going off to serve again. So I handed it to him. He took it with it. Well, I, I won't go through how many iterations that poor dinosaur has had in, <laughs> in uh, combat zones, but it has a total of of 16 man years or person years because our daughter-in-law is also uh, a veteran and a combat veteran. Um, and so we, we kind of keep that around as a reminder that we don't want to go to war anymore, but we celebrate those who are veterans. The second thing I'll show you, and, and I don't think I, I told that story to Ray, but I have told him this story. There are three people and I'll hold this box up that have this box. Uh, and on the front of it, it says, make it matter. And I have it here on my desk. And the three people that have it are General Dempsey, who was our former chairman, General Mike Scaparotti, who was our former SACUR, and me, because we were serving together in the 1st Armored Division in Baghdad in 2003. And General Dempsey started something where every time we lost a soldier in a memorial service, he would have that soldier's card printed up with details about that individual uh, their parents, their family members. This one is uh, Sergeant Kalita Davis, who was a, a medic who volunteered. She was a staff sergeant. She volunteered to go on a mission when one of her younger soldiers was sick and she was killed in action, left six children in Hawaii she, oh with a, gosh. I'm sorry, not Hawaii, Alaska, with her husband who was home in Alaska while she was deployed. And so inside this box, and I'll try and lift it off without spilling things, are the cards of 253 soldiers. There's two sailors in here who worked for me as EOD technicians in Iraq in 2007. There's a Lithuanian soldier and a Ukrainian soldier who were part of our task force. It's broken down uh, with about 15 women, uh, about 47 African-Americans, six officers, a bunch of NCOs. I've lost count on the NCOs, but every day I go into this box and just pick up one or two cards and think about where they might be today, how they might be celebrating Veterans Day at the local VFW, drinking a beer or out with their families, reflecting on their service. And yet these folks didn't make it back. They're veterans for sure, but they're also ones we memorialize. And uh, the top of the box says it all. And that's our job as those who understand service we have to make it matter to those who don't. Uh, a visit to one of our ABMC sites will do that. Uh, they're all over the world. So as you're taking a vacation somewhere overseas, uh, see if there's a site in your area and, and, and visit it because you won't, you won't regret it. They are inspirational, as both of you have said earlier. But that's what Veterans Day is to me. Uh, it's a time to celebrate the camaraderie of who we are and our our shared heraldry and our history. Uh, and even though on one day a year, I say beat Navy, uh, on the rest of the days of the year, I love you guys. And I love my Air Force brethren and my Marine Corps veterans and, and the Merchant Marines and even the Space Force, I like. <laughs> so that's what Veterans Day is all about. Those who have served, who have given a part of their lives 
to the bigger glory of our country. Mark, what an incredible testimony to those 253 soldiers, uh, sailors, uh, and foreign allies and partners that uh, served with you and that were lost in defense of freedom and democracy. We just can't top that. And what better way to end this podcast than uh, on those statements from you. And thank you so much for your service. Uh, We love you too, Mark. And uh, Fleet Kemp, I couldn't think of uh, a better uh, couple of guys to do this uh, uh, memorial uh, dedication to Veterans Day and all those giants who have gone before us. And so let's call that a wrap. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to thank our guests, Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling and Fleet Master Chief Raymond Kemp for joining us to reflect upon the service of our nation's veterans and illuminate the role that the American Battle Monuments Commission plays in preserving the memory of those who have served in all branches. This episode has been produced and edited by the Center for Maritime Strategy and the Navy League of the United States. A special thanks to our sound engineer, James Peterson, for making this recording possible. You can find this and future episodes on Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. We welcome your feedback and let us remember the sacrifice of those who went before us. Thank you and God bless.